This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. If we clean up air pollution, the weather gets hotter and wilder. From Norway, Dr. Bjorn Hamset explains the stakes. Then from Harvard, Dr. Francesca Dominici reveals shocking new science. Just a short exposure to bad air kills seniors. I'm Alex. This is Radio EcoShock, clearing the air. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. We all know air pollution is killing millions of people around the world. Nobody likes smog. But what happens if we clean it up? If electric cars reduce carbon pollution, if governments finally act to stop climate change gases, well, we get hotter. In fact, new science suggests the initial burst of heating from cleaner air could come close, in the worst-case scenario anyway, to the amount of warming we've already experienced. We'll talk about that, because here to explain is Dr. Bjorn Halvert-Samset. He is the Research Director at Cicero, the Centre for International Climate and Environmental Research that's in Norway. Bjorn is a physicist. He's widely versed in climate science. He's often quoted in Norwegian media. And Bjorn specializes in extreme precipitation, and the role of atmospheric aerosols in a changing climate. The new paper, Climate Impacts from a Removal of Anthropogenic Aerosol Emissions, was published in January 2018 in Geophysical Research Letters. Bjorn Samset, a warm welcome for Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Several years ago, Dr. James Hansen, the former head of NASA's Goddard Space Center, He warned more of a degree of heating is in the pipeline, as he called it, and that sort of delayed responses to emissions already in the atmosphere. Is that what this paper set out to test? How does this relate to Hansen's in-the-pipeline theory? Well, there are actually two quite separate concepts. The idea of Hansen's paper is really this uh, thermostat. I mean, imagine you have your your house, you, you have a new wonderful house, you know there's a thermostat on the wall, and you want it to get a little bit warmer. So you, you turn your thermostat up, say, one or two notches. That's what we've done with CO2. We've turned the thermostat of the Earth up a couple of notches. But how, how warm does it get and how long does that take? So uh, in your house, you're going to have to wait maybe a couple of hours for, for the thing to actually heat up. On the Earth, we, we really don't know how far we've gotten in this heating so, so far. So we, we, in climate change terms, we don't know the energy imbalance of the Earth. We, we've started accumulating more energy because of all this uh, extra um, greenhouse gas. We don't know how far that heating has gotten. So that's more what James Hansen was was getting at. In this new paper, we are uh, working on something else that James Hansen has also been kind of warning about. And that's that there's a separate climate impact or impact of our anthropogenic emissions. Those are from aerosols, which work, at least most of the aerosols, they're small particles suspended in, in the atmosphere, basically dust, they work completely counter to greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases act by trapping heat from the atmosphere, retaining it in the atmosphere for somewhat longer than they would otherwise have done before they escaped to space. Aerosols, they reflect sunlight as it comes back in. So they're basically miniature mirrors floating around in, in the atmosphere. They reflect back the sunlight, which will, as you can guess, cool the Earth. That's a slightly different thing, but they are about of the same magnitude, these two effects. That's true. Can you give us a brief introduction to some of the aerosols that your group studied? 
Yeah, well, aerosols, that's basically everything that's of a relatively small one micrometer about their about size in the atmosphere. So if you, if you have dust in your yard and wind blows it up that, uh, into the air, that's, that's one type of aerosol. Sea spray is another uh, type of aerosol. Those are the natural types. They've always been there. They always, um, always will be. But then our industrial activities, and in particular our use of fossil fuels, they've added some new types of aerosols. In particular, one of them is sulfate. So they sulfur compounds that they, they're, they're emitted as just small chemical compounds, but then in the atmosphere through various processes, they, they grow to larger sizes. And once, once they have reached a certain particle size, they can actually, water can condense onto these things. They become small, um, basically small water droplets with a small sulfate nucleus in, um, in the middle. And these things, they can then start reflecting sunlight. So, so sulfate is one thing. Another one is black carbon or, or various compounds of carbon that you get when you have incomplete combustion. So you, you burn some wood in your yard, you're going to see all the smoke coming up. That's a, a combination of various types of carbon. But the blackest of that, which is this black stuff that comes out of a dirty diesel engine, for instance, if you if you don't have a good particle filter on there, a lot of black smoke is going to come out. That really black smoke, that's, that's black carbon. There's actually quite a lot of that being emitted from diesel cars, from uh, coal fire plants, etc., uh, around the world every year. So these are kind of the two main aerosol types that we studied. We also looked at a little bit at uh, what's called organic carbon, which is the, the the rest of the stuff that comes out of wood smoke. But that seems to have a, a smaller effect. It's really the sulfate and the black carbon. Those are the two main aerosol types from our pollution that we consider. Why did your team think it was important to find out how much cooling we're getting from this pollution and what would happen if we managed to stop? Well, we know that air pollution, as you said in the introduction, is, well, it's obviously a bad thing. It's killing a lot of people. It's something that we really want to clean up. And in parts of the world, uh, in Europe and in the U.S., we've had the various versions of the, the Clean Air Act. We really have cleaned up our act, as it, as it were. There, there's a lot less air pollution here than there's been before. So we know that can be done, technically, and we also know it probably will be done for, for health reasons. Now, the main aerosol pollution today is in other parts of the world. There's a lot in uh, some, some in Africa, some in the Middle East, but quite, quite a lot over in, in um, South Asia. India and, and China, they have quite a lot of it. You know, if you've been to uh, Beijing or Delhi or any of these cities, they really have issues with, with air pollution, which they obviously are trying to tackle. So whatever we do with greenhouse gas emissions, this aerosol pollution is going to get cleaned up for other reasons. So in particular, now that we have the Paris Agreement and we've decided to stay within two degrees of global warming, maybe even one and a half degrees, it gets really relevant. Those are Those are... To say, well, it, it, two degrees is a lot of warming, but still relative to what we were warning about just a few years back, which was four or five degrees warming by the year 2100. And this is actually relatively moderate, which means that this aerosol perturbation or, or the, the, the effect of cleaning up air pollution is not just a small effect anymore. It's, it's a relatively significant thing. So if you, clean, if, you do, if you do the sensible thing and clean up our air, for one thing, the world as a whole gets warmer, so it makes it harder to reach the Paris target. We've known this for, for a long, long time, so that, that, that part is not a surprise. It's, it's baked into all the scenarios. But what is somewhat difficult to assess is the regional effect of this, because as I said, most of the aerosols currently 
come from Southeast Asia. That means that the big effect is really there because if you emit CO2 or even methane, these greenhouse gases, they get transported for quite some time in the atmosphere. So they distribute pretty well throughout the entire global atmosphere. The CO2 concentration where I'm sitting is the same as where you're sitting, basically wherever we are. But the aerosol concentration is not. The aerosols only stay in the air for a couple of days, uh, three, four, five days maybe at the most, which means they don't travel very far. So when I say that, well, the aerosols, if you remove all the aerosols, it might heat the world by half degree or maybe even one degree if we're unlucky. That hides a big, big, big effect that most of this global mean effect is actually concentrated around South Asia. That's the part of the world that's going to get the biggest effect, both on heating and then as you as as this you lose the aerosol heating, then the surface of East Asia is going to heat quite a lot. That affects precipitation, that affects extreme rainfall, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then it's going to have a large in, uh, climate impact. So that, that's really what we were getting at, trying to find this regional distribution of what's going to happen if you do clean up the aerosols. If I understood your results correctly, you offer a range of between a half a degree C warming and 1.1 degree C warming are possible without that air pollution being there. How did you arrive at the lower number, the 0.5 degree C warming? What has to happen for us to have less of an effect? Well, this is, let me just say that for, for this research, we, we did what we often do in climate science. We, we took the climate models and we gave them as big a kick as you can. So it's in this sense, we, we, we checked what's the impact of really removing all of our aerosol emissions, so all of our sulfate emissions from our industry, all the black carbon uh, emissions, and also a lot of the, the organic carbon, which means that we have to, uh, would have to cut a lot of the biomass burning, which uh, comes from uh, cooking, etc. That's not uh, in any way realistic, just like cutting all greenhouse gases is unfortunately not realistic for, for, for quite some time. So this is really an, an upper limit. It's really seeing how big, a, big of an effect are we really having on the climate. But this range is because we ran four different climate models from four, four groups uh, around the world, so four really fundamentally different models with different um, processes. They're state-of-the-art models run at relatively high resolution, so it's it's kind of the same models that were used for, for the previous IPCC report, uh, for instance. So they're relatively uh, up-to-date models. But as, as, as you then mentioned, they, they give relatively different answers, even though we changed the conditions in the model in precisely the same way. And most of that difference really lies in our uncertainty about how aerosols affect clouds. Because clouds are a really important player in the energy balance of the Earth. And what happens when you put a lot of aerosols into a cloud? Well, the amount of water in the cloud is not going to change. The water is just there. But this water can condense onto more small particles, which means that the water gets distributed around more, into more smaller droplets, which makes the cloud whiter, so it reflects more sunlight. So this, when we, we call it the indirect effect of aerosols. And the aerosol itself has a direct effect. That's this little mirror effect of it reflecting sunlight or even even capturing sunlight in the case of black carbon. That's a direct effect. But then this, this effect on clouds is an indirect effect. And one of the reasons that we, we chose this particular set of models, or it, it turned out to be a good choice, um, because uh, one of them we know has a relatively weak indirect effect or a weak effect of aerosols on clouds, whereas another one has a relatively strong one. So this span between half a degree and just above 
one degree of warming from removing all aerosols really comes from us not knowing very well what happens when aerosols get put into a cloud. Yes, clouds remain one of the mystery regions that science is still exploring. Now, you mentioned that water vapor requires particles in the air to become raindrops, so to speak, or snow if it's cold enough. I'm wondering, oddball question, does it follow there might be fewer extreme precipitation events in the future hitting big cities if the air is substantially cleaned up because there'd be fewer particles? Yes, that, uh, that could follow. That, that is one hypothesis that's being checked out, though there are other impacts as well from either cooling or, or heating the surface because aerosols might actually reduce the impact of this, this urban heat island effect. So, so uh, cities being, being hotter than, than the area around, we, we, we're guessing that that affects extreme precipitation, though we, we really don't have a good answer to that. It's actually being investigated back at, at Cicero, where I work in, in another project. I know other groups around the world are working on the same thing. And again, just to add to all this fun complexity of the aerosols, it depends on what kind of aerosol you're talking about, because the sulfate aerosols, they will act on, on clouds like, like we've um, been talking about, uh, making the droplets uh, smaller. So yes, that could affect the extreme rainfall rates. Then if your aerosols are black carbon instead, then they will capture the sunlight as they are, uh, or when they're flying around high in the atmosphere, which will heat the atmosphere uh, above the ground, so higher up, so that that affects the whole convection pattern, the whole the whole heating pattern of, of the atmosphere. It changes precipitation or rainfall in different ways. Again, so aerosols are. I mean, for for scientists, they're they're wonderful to study because they're they're so so complex. There's so many different ways they can interact with the climate. But if you're looking for a, a straight answer or for what is the impact of aerosols on rainfall or extreme rainfall? It's, it's horrendously difficult to, to get at. So we're, we're working on that one. Okay. Well, in this paper, you and your co-authors say, quote, we find a higher sensitivity of extreme events to aerosol reductions per degree of surface warming, in particular over the major aerosol emission regions. What is that process? How can cleaner air pump up warming into more extreme events? Well, it turns out that, that that's most likely a two-stage effect. At least that's what it looks like in, in the models. First of all, the, the effect is that when you have a lot of aerosols, say over parts of uh, East Asia, let's say China, for instance, which is currently really cleaning up its, its aerosol uh, pollution, they've had a lot of aerosols. This has been cooling the surface somewhat. Now, remove these aerosols, you're going to get a lot of surface heating there. And surface heating leads to the warmer air aloft as well, so it leads to more, more precipitation. So that's, that's the first thing. But then the second thing is that extreme precipitation, extreme rainfall, if you heat the earth just through global warming or uh, any process, then extreme rainfall will increase faster than average rainfall. Uh, this is due to the availability of, um, of moisture and also availability of, of energy uh, in the atmosphere. So it all comes down to the energy balance of the atmosphere because it takes a lot of energy to generate this big average precipitation. But whereas we, while we feel the extreme rainfall more, it actually takes less energy because there are, there are fewer of these extreme events. So this has been seen uh, both in, in uh, observations and also in, in theory that we, we know it theoretically why it happens, that um, extreme rainfall increases faster than average rainfall. So when you combine these, these effects, you see that regionally 
the ground heats faster because the uh, the aerosols are located in, in one specific region. And then the um, extreme rainfall increases faster than the average rainfall again. So it's, it's a double effect. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith from the Center for International Climate and Environmental Research in Oslo, Norway. We are talking with Dr. Bjorn Hamset. He's co-author of a new paper explaining that cleaner air could become hotter air. I'm wondering, does the reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change include this expected heating from reduced air pollution, as reported in your new paper, when they put out projections that they call their representative pathways? They do, to some extent. The reduction in aerosols that we expect in the future because of, because of health concerns and also because, of, and because when you reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you reduce use of fossil fuel and, and that cleans up aerosols as well. That part is included. But these representative concentration pathways, they tend to have pretty similar reduction pathways for the aerosols. They don't really span the the opportunity space. And for health reasons, you can certainly imagine that countries like China and India will want a relatively fast aerosol clean up if they can. And it looks like China, for instance, certainly can. They are actively reducing their, their pollution at the moment. And what is then not really well studied in any of these scenarios is what we were trying to get at in our paper, which is this, this regional distribution. So trying to understand uh, difference in impact in, uh, of climate change in different parts of the world, uh, if you have different balances between greenhouse gases and, and aerosols. You have to remember that the last even the last IPCC report uh, was really trying to warn about these business-as-usual RCP 8.5 scenarios, which, which is really emit as much as we can for uh, a long time. So really the high end of possible global warming. Uh, even in 2013, when that uh, working, last Working Group 1 report, so the natural science part of the IPCC report came out, uh, this was almost seen as the most probable outcome because there had been no reduction whatsoever of greenhouse gases at all. And this two-degree scenario was seen as unrealistically low. We would never get there. What has happened in the meantime is that we've had the Paris Agreement. Businesses, industries around the world really started taking climate change seriously. So even though we haven't really started um, reducing emissions yet, there's a mentality that wasn't there even just just a few years back, so things are are really happening. So it looks like it looks like there's going to be a big drive towards getting to these lower ends of, of global warming. But that makes the aerosols again much much more important. They, they were seen as a minor perturbation in the last IPCC report, uh, in the sense that they have their whole chapter of their own aerosols and clouds. I was contributing to that to, to that chapter as well. So we certainly did the work. Uh, properly, and they're 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 very well treated, but still, one uh, saw rightly the, the greenhouse gas emissions. That that was the main issue. But now that, that we are getting momentum behind reducing greenhouse gases, uh, suddenly aerosols start to matter more again. So probably in the next IPCC cycle, we'll have even more focus on different pathways that aerosol mitigation can take. I'm really interested in your work on regional climate change because it shows how far we've come. A couple of decades ago, all we could talk about was global climate change, and there's been a lot of work by scientists to try and narrow this down and get the regional work in. And I'm thinking of the earlier paper you co-authored in 2016. It's titled 
regional and seasonal radiative forcing by perturbations to aerosol and ozone precursor emissions. And that paper suggested a way to time the release of pollution to improve air quality without losing the cooling shield of different aerosols. Here's what you said. For example, reducing summertime emissions of black carbon and wintertime emissions of sulfur dioxide in the more polluted regions is a possible way to improve air quality without weakening the negative radiative forcing of aerosols. Bjorn, can you give us an example of how that could work? The thing is that aerosols, they have different, they have different ways of interacting with, with the climate. One we've already covered quite extensively, it's interaction with, with clouds. So imagine you release sulfate aerosols, but you do it in a cloud-free environment, then that, that effect is really not, not going to matter. But if you do it at a time of the year when there's a lot of clouds, then, um, then it's going to matter a, a lot more. So if you, if you time your uh, mitigation to be parts, either parts of the year that have a lot of clouds or parts that have, don't have so much, um, uh, so much cloud, then you, you, you can modulate you can still keep the cooling while fixing the, the air pollution for at least certain parts of the year. Black carbon, on the other hand, it becomes it, its climate impact becomes stronger the, the, the whiter the surface beneath it becomes. So it kind of gets a double effect because the white, it, it captures sunlight coming in, but if the sunlight uh, misses the black carbon, it hits the, the earth and, and, and the surface is white, then the sunlight gets reflected back up and then it can hit the black carbon going back up again. So it has a double chance of um, uh, interacting with solar radiation. So for, well, up where I, where I live in Norway, we have a lot of snow now. So every, everything is white. So black carbon is going to have a big effect now. Whereas in summer, uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot darker. We have a lot of dark forests and, 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 and trees. So it's not going to matter all that much. You can do things like this. You can do kind of clever timing of your uh, mitigation. Though I have to say it was, it was suggested that uh, you could do something like that, uh, but it, it's something that uh, would probably be very difficult in uh, in actual practice. But it's it's an example of the kind of thinking that we we might need if if it turns out that the impacts of climate change are so severe that we really 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 do not want to go above two degrees. And at the same time, you see that air pollution is so bad that it kills so many people that we really, really have to clean it up. Then maybe things like this could be ideas, could be ways of uh, of, of arranging it for, for our, our, ourselves so we can hit both targets at once. As you've said, we know heavily populated regions like New England to some degree, but definitely Shanghai and Delhi have their own dome of particulates above them. And I'm wondering, does that mean that swings in heat and precipitation and extreme weather could be larger above megacities as aerosols are reduced? Yes, it does mean that. Um, the aerosols are part of uh, this, this complex interaction between uh, uh, solar radiation and, and surface heating, moisture, latent heating, all these, uh, these effects that, that act uh, together to produce the, the microclimates around the big cities. And in, in extremely polluted cases, uh, you know aerosols are going to be a major player. So the climate around, say, um, a totally clean Beijing or clean Delhi is, is of course, going to be fundamentally different from the climate around a polluted city. 
when it is polluted, it's it's this pollution that you notice first. So so of course you want to get rid of the air pollution, have a, a clean air city. But on average, you're going to you're going to experience then differences in long term rainfall rates and probably also even even extreme rainfall. But how that effect plays out is really going to be extremely local. There there we have to go in with regional climate modeling, even weather um, weather predictions file um, uh, calculations for each specific region. That's a, a tough challenge, but probably should be done for each city where this is relevant, just so you can actually prepare for uh, the climate that is coming after, after the aerosol cleanup. I'm wondering if our current path of warming may become so steep and so serious that somewhere a worried scientist might advise top politicians, we can't afford any more legislation to clean up the air right now due to increased heating. And I know President Trump would accept that scientific advice. Is it possible? Well, I've seen scientists say a lot of uh, strange things. So uh, anything is possible. I would hope that no one does say that. Though, of course, it's what, what, what you advise someone is always going to be a balance. It would certainly not be, um, um, be my advice. And I, I certainly know that our concern for human health and just the lungs of our children, if you will, tends to be a lot higher than climate. So uh, our concern for the climate. So I, I would guessing it would rather be uh, the other way around, that we, now we have to spend as much money as we can on cleaning up air pollution, and then we can do greenhouse gas emissions next, right. which uh, is then also problematic in this case, because this extra heating that you would get from removing air pollution, really, it's really only main message is that, well, we have to be even tougher on greenhouse gas emissions and at the same time as cleaning up uh, the air. Well, I agree. I think this paper definitely means we need a new way forward. We need to educate and warn the public, and they should understand that a smaller warming due to cleaner air with any disruption, that's not a failure. It's just a price we have to pay for past atmospheric carbon dumping. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I mean, this is uh, just just like, like really the, the, the whole climate change issue. I mean, it's not... It's not something previous generations uh, did to us out of out of malice, right? It's, it's a situation we put ourselves in because we wanted to create a better society for climate change or the use of fossil fuels. We we did this by exploiting the energy reserve that suddenly became available to us. Fossil fuels are wonderful, right? They they've given us the society that we live in. But then it turns out they have this side effect of causing a hotter climate, which we're now realizing that we really have to deal with and we have to do it fast. And we kind of back ourselves into a corner because we have so much use for fossil fuels. Now, all these same processes, they are also emitting aerosols. That's a second effect. It's also there. Again, it's not there by, by, by malice. It kind of just, just happened as we go along. But now we're realizing that we have this double, I, I usually call it a, a tug of war between the, the heating from, from greenhouse gases and the cooling from Aerosols. We're trying to get a handle on uh, which side has been winning that um, that tug of war, but but both the effects are there, and we just have to deal with them. We've been speaking with Dr. Bjorn Halvard Samset. He's the research director at the Center for International Climate and Environmental Research in Oslo, Norway. Bjorn is co-author of a new paper warning a cleanup of air pollution could reveal serious warming already hidden in the system. 
You can find the full paper free online at the Journal for Geophysical Research Letters and find links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Bjorn, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thanks for talking with me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. If you thought air pollution was cleaned up and regulated for safety by the government, listen up. Smog continues to kill thousands of Americans and likely millions of others around the world every year. But who? And how can we save lives? And what can you learn to protect your own? A massive study from Harvard University adds a surprising new twist. For American seniors, just a short-term exposure to air pollution drives up deaths for the next two days. The title is Association of Short-Term Exposure to Air Pollution with Mortality in Older Adults. It was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. Our guest, Francesca Domenici, is co-author. Educated in Italy, she's been applying statistics to public health problems at John Hopkins University and more recently at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where she is professor of biostatistics. Last March, Domenici became co-leader of a major project called the Harvard Data Science Initiative. Francesca, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thank you for having me. I try to keep cool and science-minded, but I I admit when I look into lives lost to pollution, I get a little upset. Uh, We could save a lot of lives that do matter by warning people that are at risk and cleaning up the air a little bit more. What do you think? Yes, that's correct. We are now very confident, not only through the study that I have led, but through many other studies around the world, that still short-term exposure to fine particulate matter and ozone, even a level below safety standards, are harmful to human health and increase the risk of death for people older than 65. Were you able to find a threshold where these small particles are all right for you? No, uh, and that was actually one of the key funding of this study. What was very unique about these studies was that for the first time we used data from satellite so then we could estimate exposure to pollution at levels that are very, very low and below the national ambient air quality standards that are set by the Environmental Protection Agency here in the U.S. And this has never been done before with the level of accuracy. Before, most of the epidemiological studies have estimated mortality risk associated with exposure of pollution only in very urban areas, which are the areas that are monitored by the EPA. So in any case, by being able to estimate exposure to pollution in more rural area, in an area where the levels are very low, for the first time, we were able to estimate the risk of mortality for levels that are below the standards. Because we did the study for million and million and million of U.S. citizens, actually for 97% of the whole population in the United States, we had a higher level of accuracy in trying to understand 
whether or not a safe level exists. And actually, it it doesn't, which really what is telling is that we really need to reduce ambient exposure to fine particulate matter as much as possible. Yes, there's data, and then there is stupendous megadata. I mean, you covered 12 years, millions and millions of Americans, every zip code. How can you possibly manipulate that much data and and come out with something? (laughs) Well, I love this question because I am a data scientist, and this is uh, really my, my passion. Well, you know, of course, I assemble a fantastic team uh, of data scientists that I could by no means do this all by myself. We linked claims data from Medicare for over 12 years with uh, estimated exposure to pollution, as I said, using satellite data and data from the EPA for every zip code in the United States for every day for the last 12 years. Yes, this is was a massive amount of data. Uh, just to give you a sense, so this was we uh, analyzed 460 million records. How did how did we do it? Well, it's a mix of highly sophisticated computational approaches that we learn from the computer scientists, together with literally taking over all the entire Harvard supercomputer. We did have an ask to dedicate to these studies all of the computers at Harvard. We use Harvard, you know, we use uh, a secure server system. And so we literally were the only one at Harvard at some point that were using the entire computing power of the university. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's that's saying something. Well, also, you know, I should say that the only time we could do that was on Christmas Eve and uh, on July 4th, because, uh, you know, all, everyone else was on a holiday. So. And you were hard at work. Well, let's say one fine Monday in May, we wake up and the pollution is up. Maybe the news mentions it. We see a brownish haze. We go out anyway. What did your study find out about deaths within the next two days or so? Yeah, what we found is uh, that even for this actually small increase of of fine particular matter, so let's say just one unit increase in the level of fine particular matter from the day to the next, what we found is for one unit increase in ambient fine particular matter from one day to the next, which is a small, tiny increase, by the way. It's not something that you will notice. A big increase is a 10 microgram per cubic meter. So for a small, even for a small increase, every time you see a small increase so from one day to the next of our one unit in fine particular matter, we will estimate an excess of uh, 500 extra deaths per year every time that this happens. So in general, just think about, you know, in a ballpark number, we did say that on average, you will get, for every time there is a little bit increase in fine particular matter, thousands, up to 20,000 senior citizens will die every year. And, you know, we're pretty confident about these, these fundings right now. And even, you know, in terms of the how precise these estimates are. And so... It is like if someone would say to the public, look, we know that 
very often we might have a situation where over 20,000 citizens, senior citizens in America will, will die per year. I'm pretty sure that you know, if that was a terrorist attack or was any other factor, people will intervene pretty quickly. In this situation, this is something that's happening when at the same time, unfortunately, we're seeing a tremendous amount of evidence that the current government is shutting down the Environmental Protection Agency and the science around the EPA. Well, I want to get into that more a little bit later, but the first is something that kind of shocked me about this study, something I have to grasp with, and that is, I presume that air pollution was like smoking cigarettes, kind of a cumulative effect over years, but it seems like you're saying even one bad air day can bring an earlier death. Yes, that's true. We published a different study back in July, actually June, that's June in the New England Journal of Medicine, that study used a similar amount of data to provide evidence that long-term exposure, cumulative exposure to air pollution increase mortality risk. And so that is the type of chronic exposure, like the, the one that you're mentioning in the context of you know, chronic exposure of cigarette smoking. This particular study is different, and you're exactly right in terms of that, in a certain way, a little bit more surprising, because what we are studying are short-term effects. And so what we are studying is whether day-to-day changes in ambient exposure to pollution. So if you had an increase in exposure from pollution from yesterday to tomorrow, do we see in the same geographical location a day-to-day changes in mortality risk? And the answer is yes. And that's what it's telling us is that ambient exposure to pollution does not only affect mortality and, by the way, many other adverse health outcomes chronically, but also as an acute effect. And I've looked at photographs from a microscope of these tiny particles. They're not like just a bit of dust or a bit of sand necessarily. After they flow through city air, they look more like little asteroids coated with pesticides and heavy metals. Is it true that some below a certain size cannot be filtered out by the body and just go straight past our defenses into the lungs and maybe the bloodstream? Yes, that's exactly right. Originally, years ago, the Environmental Protection Agency was regulating total suspended particles that were much larger particle sizes. Then they transitioned into regulating PM10, which was particular matter of a diameter of less than 10 microns. Now they're regulating PM2.5, which is particular matter of diameter size less than 2.5 microns. Now, these are called fine particular matters. The reason why they're called fine particular matters is that they penetrate deep into the lung, and now there is in a lot of evidence, both from biological studies, studies in vivo, studies in vitro, but also from other animal studies, that by fine particular matter, by penetrating deep into the lung, start and quite drastic inflammation system, which could affect our heart and our lungs. 
these are these are fine particular matter in a way that you don't filter out by coughing. So, for example, if you driving in a very dusty area or there is a construction, you tend or if you you know your eyes are sort are burning a little bit. These are not defined particular matter. These are called coarse particular matter. Are bigger in size, and so then you tend to filter out, which is also. Uh, what is a little worrisome about the fine particular matter that is not something that you experience. You don't know whether or not you are breathing, or you tend not to notice whether or not you are breathing higher level of fine particular matter. And they can come right through the walls into the building. We could be breathing them right now. We probably are. Exactly, exactly. Um, differently from uh, ozone, Ozone is a different type of pollutant, and it has a hard time to penetrate into the indoor. But actually, we have also a lot of evidence that indoor PM2.5 is higher than the outdoor PM2.5 because you have both the part of the outdoor PM2.5 that comes inside plus some sources of fine particulate matter that comes from the inside. Were you able to determine in this study, or have you heard from other studies, how these two pollutants affect, say, African Americans more or Hispanics more or poorer people? Is there a breakdown below the big numbers? Yes. Other, many, many of my colleagues around the world have been providing evidence that, indeed and unfortunately, the most vulnerable, both in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of access of healthcare, in terms of having other type of comorbidity, tend to be having tend to have a higher risk of mortality associated with fine particular matter. Uh, there have been a census study all around the world in developing country. The fact for Fine particular matter is devastating, especially in India and China, also because the levels in this country tend to be extremely, extremely high. In our country, in the United States in particular, both this study that we're just publishing and the study that we published in last summer, again, because we were able to rigorously study the entire U.S. population we estimate the mortality risk associated with short- to long-term exposure for people of color and for people that are in lower socioeconomic status. So we measured that because we knew from claims data the people that enroll in Medicaid, and it's very well known that that are eligible to the Medicaid system, they, you know, they have lower income. And both in the context of mortality risk associated with chronic exposure to pollution and mortality risk associated with short-term exposure to pollution, we did find that people of low income and black particular have much, much higher risk. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I am Alex Smith. My guest from the Harvard School of Public Health is Professor Francesca Domenici. We're talking about how even a short burst of pollution kills thousands of Americans every year. I know that you think it's important to get the word about this out there, or you wouldn't be on this program. 
Don't you think seniors and activists need to hear about this science? I mean, way beyond the medical journals, which incidentally are hidden behind copyright walls. Yes, I mean, that for sure. I mean, I think that as a scientist, my main responsibility is to do high rigorous science, provide the best possible evidence, and trying to publish my science to the top medical journal where to the degree that they can, they highly scrutinize the quality of the science that we produce through the peer review system. And then we go to press release and we talk to people like you to disseminate the evidence. But I do think it's extremely important that the American people understand understand the science, understand the implication of what we are publishing, because ultimately it is a responsibility of the government to making sure that we can breathe clean air. Uh, keep in mind that differently from other type of public health risk factor, you know, let's say smoking or stay away from fatty food, don't eat potato fries, lose weight. To a certain degree, in this context, people can have control or make choices about quit smoking and deciding to have a healthier uh, lifestyle. In the context of breathing, fine particulate matter, I mean, you know, it's not that you can stop breathing, right? <laughs> so it's not that you can try to move in any, every time in a different location where you think the level of pollution are lower. So it is really the responsibility of the government in trying to assure that we can breathe clean air, not only for the senior citizen, but especially for the kids and the children. By the way, not my own research, but colleagues of mine, University of Southern California have done fantastic studies years ago that published in New England Journal of Medicine where they've shown that kids that were, were in a, you know, breathing air pollution have a you know, compromised pulmonary function. And so this is kids where ultimately the pulmonary function is going to get compromised for the rest of their life. So this is serious stuff. Now, the United States is lucky under the Clean Air Act to have the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, and those are modified from time to time as new science like yours comes out. Where are we in that process? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the Clean Air Act, which was, I, I would say, a fantastic um, victory in a certain way toward reducing ambient level of pollution. I mean, since the Clean Air Act passed in the 70s and through the National Ambient Air Quality Standard, if anyone is curious to see the ambient level of pollution in this country, they have been going down uh, over time. And in a certain way, it's been a beautiful example of setting a law, setting safety standard, looking at the evidence, reviewing the scientific evidence, and keep um, lowering the level. So I have to say on a positive note, we have done through a responsible government, through the EPA, and through the, through the science, a fantastic job in cleaning up the air. However, I do think that we're not done yet. I do think that what we want to do with this study and with the reason why we gathered an enormous amount of data was really to 
see as whether the job of cleaning up the air was done or not. And even when I take this, this enormous study population and I only look at mortality risk associated with exposure of pollution in areas that are always below the national ambient air quality standards. So I always look at senior citizens that always live in clean area, right? So these are people that are always in compliance. Still, we see an increase in mortality risk. So I think the bottom line is the Cleaner Act, setting national ambient air quality standards, the review of the scientific evidence by the EPA, I think, has been a fantastic example of how we've been cleaning up our hair, but we're not done yet. Before we go, the Harvard Data Science Initiative, that looks very promising. What is the goal there? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad you asked me this. Uh, we're, it's, um, so the Harvard Data Science Initiative is a university-wide initiative has been appointed, um, has been created and funded initially by the Provost, our Provost Alan Garber. The idea is the following, uh, not all in the context of environmental health, but in the context of all the major scientific disciplines, ranging from astronomy, ranging from medicine, personalized medicine, the um, public health, the economy, uh, in social sciences, in any single discipline, we now know that we can make enormous progress in understanding and answering important scientific questions through data. Now we have available all a new type of data, data from satellite, data from cell phone, data from sensor. And so the goal of the Data Science Initiative, which we hope to become in Harvard Data Science Institute, is to bring together the best minds of Harvard that can use the best possible data to unlock important scientific questions. And this study is one example. It's an example of taking massive amount of data, by the way, all from government sources, from satellite, from uh, temperature, from monitoring network, from claims data, from Medicare, and to unlock important questions, which in this context is, does the current level of ambient air pollution still killing us? What will you be working on next? Well, so many different things. One is in my role as one of the director of the Harvard Data Science Initiative. I literally try to better understand all of the different data science around Harvard so that I can empower many of my colleagues to find better treatment for cancer, to identify social injustice, to better understand the economic factors, to better understand digital economy, and so on. So I have an important role as a director of the Data Science Initiative together with my, my colleague and the other co-director, David Parks, who is a professor of computer science at Harvard University. Then I will uh, continue to conduct studies in the context of environmental health, uh, not only in terms of providing epidemiological evidence about health effects of air pollution, but more importantly, in terms of understanding and providing evidence of what can we do about it, what type of regulatory intervention could allow to reduce exposure to pollution in a cost-effective manner. 
Um, I am also fundamentally a data scientist and a methodologist, so I develop statistical methodology to extract useful information from messy data. And that is really important because one pattern that's happening right now with all of this data and with all of these buzz, you know, through machine learning and artificial intelligence, I think we still need to keep in mind that having a lot of data without principled way of analyzing this data, we can get a lot of confusion and not a lot of information. And finally, you know, I am a professor, so I mentor students, I mentor postdoctoral fellow, I teach classes. Um, so, yeah. Sounds like a busy life, all right. From the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, we've been speaking with Dr. Francesca Domenici as a professor of biostatistics. She's co-authored the paper, Association of Short-Term Exposure to Air Pollution with Mortality in Older Adults. These are your doctors talking, people, so we want to listen to that. You can find more links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Francesca, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You're very welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for covering this important science and for having me at the show. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. In our short time remaining, here is a brief clip from early Radio EcoShock. On February 9th, 2006, my show, The Polluted Womb, reported that air pollution enters the womb and can change the DNA of babies and future health for a lifetime. Here is a clip, and I'll repost the full piece in my show blog at ecoshock.org. A report from Radio EcoShock. I think you're all aware that asthma rates in children have increased dramatically in recent years. There's been a, a, a reported doubling in incidence rates in, uh, in the last 20 years. And a recent study confirmed that 25% of elementary school children in Harlem had asthma. And developmental problems have also been increasing, even accounting for improved diagnosis. Rates of learning disabilities, ADHD, and autism have increased, and uh, an estimated 15% of elementary or school children in the U.S. have at least one learning disability. That's right. Classrooms full of wheezing kids with inhalers in their pockets. Postmodern kids have damaged DNA and diminished IQ because chemicals are hitting them right in the womb in their earliest stages of development. Okay, this is last year's news, but the horror of industrial damage to our new generation of humans hasn't really reached us. We definitely don't want to hear that our air, seeming so clear, is poisonous. And our vehicles, those magic things that let us fly across the ground, reach right into the womb and our lungs ever after. A team of researchers led by Dr. Frederica Pereira has proven this with a groundbreaking study in New York City. The team from Columbia University followed hundreds of mothers from the first discovery of pregnancy through infancy and early childhood. One of the most important discoveries? Pesticides and other industrial chemicals are mixing with car exhaust, a kind of unseen toxic smog that penetrates the womb and harms humans at every stage of life. Pesticides cause birth defects, damage DNA, and predispose children to diseases later in life, especially cancer. We know this 
by science and by the sick and dying people exposed to pesticides. Of course, you don't use pesticides, just Mother Nature brand soap in your home, so you're okay, right? Not really. As Dr. Pereira describes in a 40-minute speech given to congressional staffers, pesticides are everywhere. Municipalities spray them along roads to kill weeds and trees. Condo and apartment maintenance people use them liberally. Golf course spray adds to the aerosol mist of chlorinated poisons that float across the city. And your factory farm food is laced with fungicides, insecticides, and herbicides. Blood tests of random citizens, whether in Europe or North America, reveal 60 or more toxic chemicals running around in all of us. Trust me, you're getting your fair share of the chemical feast. I've got mercury, lead, arsenic. I've got flame retardants. I've got the stain repellent. I've got PCBs. I've got pesticides. I've got insecticides. So, you know, digesting that and then thinking, well... These are carcinogens, these are toxins that are in me, and then thinking that we only tested for 88. So I have to just extrapolate that and think there are hundreds more in me, and there are hundreds more in everybody. You burst the bubble of denial pretty quickly. The biggest non-surprise? Automobile smog combined with pesticides and stress form a super threat to human health. The exhaust of cars and trucks, which we all take for granted, is so powerful it crosses nature's protective barrier in the womb, the placenta, and injures our babies. The number of cars and trucks has more than doubled since the 1950s. We are producing a new damaged generation, the exhausted ones. Let's introduce Dr. Frederica Pereira from the Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia University. A small story about her study broke in the New York Times for February 16, 2005. It was an Associated Press piece titled, Pollution is Linked to Fetal Harm. Google that title, the article pops up top of the pile. It reads, Exposure to pollutants caused chiefly by vehicles was measured by backpack air monitors worn by the women during the third trimester of pregnancy. When the babies were born, genetic alterations were measured. Researchers found an increase of about 50% in the level of persistent genetic abnormalities among infants with high levels of exposure, said the study's senior author, Dr. Frederica P. Pereira, director of the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health. Quote, We already knew that air pollutants significantly reduced fetal growth, but this is the first time we've seen evidence that they can change chromosomes in utero, Dr. Pereira said, adding that the kind of genetic changes that occurred had been linked in other studies to increased risk of cancer. Well, those three paragraphs in the New York Times note that vehicle exhaust is altering the genes of newborns and a whole generation and not in a good way. It's a shame that car pollution stories don't warrant the full-page spreads available to car makers and oil company advertisers. But Dr. Pereira said much more in a talk titled Prenatal Exposures to Pollutants and Future Health Risks. It was part of a policymaker education course for congressional staff, organized by the Harvard Medical School Center for Health and the Global Environment. It was on March 30, 2005. You can be briefed like the Congress staff by watching the video. I'll tell you how to find the video and a better quality audio version of the speech later in this broadcast.
can find my 2006 piece, The Polluted Womb, in my show blog at ecoshock.org. From our first moments of life to our last, air pollution can damage human health. Let's clear the air. Thank you for listening, and please join me again next week for more Radio Ecoshock.